Built to Sell Radio with your host, John Warlow. Hey guys, this is John Warlow. This episode of Built to Sell Radio is brought to you by the Value Builder Score. If you haven't got your score yet, I'd encourage you to take 13 minutes and complete the questionnaire you'll find at valuebuilder.com. It'll give you your score on the eight key drivers of company value. You're going to learn some different things about what drives the value of your business. You'll be able to see how you performed on these eight unique factors. Go to valuebuilder.com. So my next guest is Catherine Haig. She sold ShopLocket to PCH. One of the fascinating things about this story is just how quickly it went. She went from investing $15,000 of her own money to raising 10 grand from a friend to raising another 50 grand from an incubator to raising a million dollar round of financing all within the space of months and then quickly sold the company to PCH uh, for what she describes as a very good return for her and all of her investors. It's a fascinating story about the mechanics and intricacies of raising money. And not only is the sale uh, an interesting outcome, but how she got there and how she raised the money was something that I was fascinated with. And in particular, she talks a little bit about the deal terms with each of the rounds of financing that she was able to generate. And each one is is a real nugget of wisdom that I think Catherine shares. So without further ado, here's Catherine Haig. Catherine Haig, welcome to Built to Sell Radio. Thanks so much for having me, John. So you sold a company called Shop Locket, and I'm dying to know what you guys did. So give me this, this spiel here. What, what business were you in? Yes, of course. So we were an e-commerce platform. So we didn't sell our own goods. We were uh, the underlying technology that helped other people sell. And when I first started working on the company, really the idea was that we wanted people to be able to embed products and embed stores on any website. So the same way you can embed a YouTube video on any website, we wanted you to be able to embed products. And at the time, this really didn't exist. You know, There were no really easily embeddable plugins for stores. There were no buy buttons. That just didn't really exist. So we were one of the first people to go out there and say you can sell anything from anywhere. But as we built the company, we really found out that our... Uh, market, I guess our Trojan horse was that we were able to do pre-orders. So we allowed people to collect credit card numbers, but not charge people immediately. And that brought a lot of people that were coming off of Kickstarter and Indiegogo over to our platform over some of the bigger competitors in the space. So we very quickly became the pre-order platform. Uh, And that led us to working with tons of big hardware companies and people that had done multi-million dollar crowdfunding campaigns using us to really bridge that gap when they aren't yet shipping a product, but they want to keep taking orders. Fascinating. And so they're not actually, in your case, you, you weren't processing the credit card. So the the benefit to the retailer or the, the, the commerce provider wasn't um, that they got the cash. It's just that they got the order and could therefore then process it when they, when they were ready to ship. Is that correct? Exactly. Um, Because up until then, really, you'd have to sort of hack around existing solutions. You'd have to set up a storefront and then maybe you were able to change buy to pre-order. But either way, it was going to charge people and there'd probably be some automated tech saying your order's on its way, even though it's not actually on its way. Um, So we allowed people to uh, not charge people, which reduced their liability, but also take that credit card so they can charge them later and have all of the actual flow of the e-commerce make sense when the product isn't shipping immediately. I mean, pre-orders is like a pretty common way to do business. How come the big e-commerce platforms didn't have this technology already? 
Well, I think it has a lot to do with the fact that pre-orders were a lot more common in digital goods, maybe even a little bit in, you know, soft goods, software. Um, But in the idea of hard physical goods, really before Kickstarter and Indiegogo, unless your product existed, people didn't necessarily trust that you were going to ship this thing. Um, So for a lot of startups, Really, they had no way of actually convincing a customer to do pre-orders until Kickstarter and Indiegogo started making customers feel a lot safer with this concept. So it was about five years ago, really, that I'd say consumers started waking up to physical good pre-orders and trusting online sales enough that this became a really big driver for startup companies. And pre-orders you know, probably always existed in other ways, but never in this sort of mass consumer market, um, which really led to the platforms being structured in a very specific way for a very specific type of order. And so how did you st- this is such a quirky business and such a weird the kind of the plumbing of the internet. How did you get into this? Yeah, so I actually uh, knew the founder of Shopify fairly well. Um, when they were starting up in 2007, 2008, naturally, Toby came and spoke at a bunch of startup conferences that I was doing. Toby's the CEO. Um, and I started developing Shopify themes. And um, I was going to assume you sort of know what Shopify is, but it's similar to Magento, really big e-commerce platform nowadays. But um, back in 2008, 2009, they were you know still a little bit unknown. And I was one of their first theme developers, so very similar to WordPress themes, I had designed stores. And I was working with uh, all of the customers that would buy my theme, and I'd look at their stores, and I'd notice that a lot of them only had one or two products. And to me, it seemed crazy that they had their website, and then they had this separate store where they sold one or two things. The brand was completely different to their original website. And I was like, why can't we just put this one product on their existing site? But within sort of the piping of how Shopify worked and really how all e-commerce platforms worked at the time, that just wasn't possible. You couldn't have the flow within your website. And I thought that was just crazy. Um, So I started trying to hack around Shopify to try to build a Shopify app that would make this possible turned out just where the platform was at at the time what I wanted to do wasn't possible so I had to branch out and start building something on my own and that's really where ShopLock had started and then how did you finance the development of ShopLock and I mean did you have investors I'm assuming you had venture capital at the yeah table so when when we first started off uh, I think I had something like 15 grand of my own savings so it was sort of eight months of my own personal runway um, that I'd be able to live and keep the company afloat, but literally just paying for myself and maybe a couple contractors. And then about two months in, um, I got a small investment of $10,000, which let me hire a couple more contractors. And then when we were about five months in, we got into an incubator um, that was at the time called Extreme Startups. It's now known as Highline VC. Um, They gave us $50,000. And that was a three-month program out of which we closed a million dollars in financing. Um, And it was about a year and a half after our financing that we sold the company. Wow. So, okay. So let me get this straight. So two months, you get 10 grand from kind of a friend or family member kind of idea, like a, uh, yes. It was a friend actually. It was a little bit crazy. We'd only known each other for about three months. She was a couple years older than me. Um, she's gone on to do incredibly well herself. 
uh, started a company called Ladies Learning Code and Hacker U. Um, but at the time, I think she gave me about half her net worth when she wrote me a check <laughs> for 10K. Um, and it happened because I had gone to Y Combinator to interview. And I didn't get in. I came back. I had already quit my job because I didn't want Y Combinator to determine whether or not I was going to work on this startup. Um, my co-founder who had interviewed at Y Combinator with me uh, left the company and my boyfriend broke up with me. So it was just a really, really shitty week. Um, and Heather came over and we were having a drink and I showed her the demo that I'd built. And she's like, I love it. I want to invest. And I assumed this was just the wine taking over. Um, and we decided we'd chat the next day and make sure that she actually wanted to do this. And she was still on board. So she became my first investor. And actually has really uh, inspired me to actually do angel investing myself um, because it really taught me the power uh, of an angel investor and someone just believing you in those earliest days. How much, do you, how much, how much equity do you buy for 10K for a two-month-old startup? Um, so we didn't have any idea what we were doing, but um, I think what we ended up having it was a half a million dollar valuation. Um, so she got whatever percentage that is. Uh, and we really just picked that relatively out of thin air uh, when we did it at the time. Got it. Got it. Wow. And so, um, and so how did that valuation of 500 mil, or five, a million dollars, you said, sorry, it was 500K? It was a $500,000 valuation, $10,000 investment, so she got 2%. Got it. You're better at math than I am. Um, <laughs> so then how did that valuation of 500K kind of evolve when you went to the, the 50K incubator investment? Um, was it still pegging the company value at about 500K or had it grown? So yeah. Incubators are fairly standard. Uh, incubators tend to take 7 to 10%, um, maybe a little bit lower, maybe a little higher in some cases. So incubators are fairly standard in terms of their valuation. They don't even really talk in terms of valuation. They just say, we're going to give you, Extreme Startups was 50K for 10% um, is how they ran it. So um, for us, it, we didn't even really think about the valuation when we were taking it. Uh, it was more the the program and the partnership and the network that we were getting into. And, of course, the money was a big plus. And, Catherine, did you know you wanted to sell this company down the road? I knew that was the likely outcome. Uh, I mean, we were going into a space that had a lot of different players into it. And we definitely carved out, you know, as we, we said, this sort of niche for ourselves. But there were a ton of players. And, uh, you know, either we become the Shopify or the eBay in the space or, you know, if we're, we're lucky along the way, we have a great exit to one of these companies. So I knew in the back of my head that that was a likely outcome. And of course, uh, our investors are wanting either one of the big exits or the IPO to be uh, what happens with the company. Um, so it's always in the back of your mind, I think, especially when you're starting this type of tech startup, that that could be what happens. Um, but really, I think in the earliest days, it was just something that I was so shocked didn't exist in the market and, um, just felt if I wasn't going to do it, someone was going to do it. And, you know, why shouldn't that be me? Right. So talk to me about the difference in capital that the, you got from the incubator, the 50 K and, and, and then I'm assuming the million dollar investment from the professional money, uh, it had a different tenor to it. Is that fair to say? Maybe talk a little bit about that. Yeah. So, I mean, the 50K investment was fairly, like, there wasn't really much negotiation. Sure, we, it was the first time they'd ever run that particular incubator. So, we had a little bit more negotiation over terms than um, 
if an incubator had, say, been running for many, many cohorts. Um, but at the same time, you know, it was pretty standard. We entered the program um, for the million dollar round of funding. It was probably one of the biggest learning experiences of my life, more so about human nature and how deals get done and sales than anything else. I mean, we had to do probably hundreds of pitches um, in order to get our ultimate investor group set up. And it just felt like this dance where, you know, one person commits and then can you get the next person to commit? Or what if that person backs down? What do you do? Uh, you know, how do you make sure that there's a closed date so that you can get people to commit fast enough to try to create momentum? Uh, and I think that, you know, these are things that really play into a first round fundraise. And a lot of people think it's just, you know, your product, your market, your traction, but there's so much more that goes into this. These are very human decisions. And at that stage, we were a two-month-old company. There was very little data. So most of the decision was being made based on um, you know, social proof and outside uh, opinions and back-channeling, uh, which for me was absolutely fascinating and also uh, you know, a little bit scary at times because you just really didn't feel like you had that much control. And um, I, I think I would do it uh, much differently if I did it again, but I also think I, I played the cards I had at the time. What would you do differently? I just think that having gone through it before, I'd be in a different negotiating position. I think I would know what terms are standard. I think I would know which investors I want to work with. I would know what I want from a deal. Um, but I think that at the time, I just didn't have that leverage. So what, term, um, what terms would you consider standard? And then what terms did you agree to that in retrospect, you're like, you know what, I should never have agreed to that? Um, so I mean, I don't think we did anything terrible. Uh, when we were negotiating it, I think our investors were, were pretty fair with how it was put together. Maybe we would have been able to do a little bit more on valuation. Um, one thing that was really important to me when we were negotiating was board control. Um, so we did end up coming out where it was a three-person board. One was our investors, one was us, and then there was an observer seat. Uh, not an observer seat, sorry. Um, an outsider seat, but we got to choose uh, who that person was. Um, and that meant that we effectively had control over the board. Um, so that was something that was really important to me. Not having uh, participating preferred shares was something that a lot of entrepreneurs had warned me against. Um, one thing I'm very glad that we did, even though we never had to use it, was that we had founder vesting. I've seen a lot of companies, uh, you know, fall because they have founder splits and one person walks away with half the company. So I think vesting is something that everyone should have in their um, initial contracts. Um, Let's talk about those individually, Catherine. So talk about part participating preferred shares. So uh, what are, so assume, assume uh, I don't know anything about what that means. What, what is a participating preferred share? and Why is that a bad thing? Yeah. So a participating preferred share would mean that an investor, let's say, puts in a million dollars. Um, and then you sell the company for, let's say, $2 million. Um, maybe they only had 10% of the company when they invested, um, but because they were participating preferred share, um, they get their entire million dollars back uh, out of the sale of the company, um, not based on their pro rata, so their ownership in the company. Um, and then on top of that, they get from the remaining money, their percentage of the company. Um, so it basically is a double dip, um, is sort of the easiest way to explain it. Um, but it basically means that an investor is 
um, getting their money back and then getting their portion of the company. I find these guys so sleazy. <laughs> I find so the, the entire like, uh, world of venture capital and financial engineers sleazy. Well, so and participating preferred isn't even that bad. There's some people that will work in like a 2x participating preferred. So they're guaranteed double their investment back and then they get to double dip. So there's all of these different things that, you know, many first time entrepreneurs or first time fundraising entrepreneurs will see a term sheet. It's like, wow, I get a million dollars. This is incredible. But you very quickly as an entrepreneur realize that there's an economic consequence to everything listed in that term sheet. And even if you don't understand it, um, it will come to bite you uh, later on. So really understanding what's in that term sheet and being willing to walk away from deals um, that really don't make sense for you and your company. It might feel really shitty at the time, but it's so important. So explain vesting for folks who don't know what that is. And again, why founder vesting would be important. Vesting is so important. Um, So uh, let's say that I have my best friend, we've been friends for 20 years, and we decide to start a company together. It's going to be a 50-50 split. Um, And without vesting, what would happen in a year if one of us walked away um, is that they'd walk away with 50% of the company. And at that point in time, you have to, you know, maybe do a shotgun agreement or try to price the company and buy that person out. Um, And it just becomes extremely messy. And oftentimes companies just collapse in those types of scenarios. Um, You know, it's even trickier when you have three co-founders and each owns 30% and then one walks away with 30 and you have two people left still wanting to run the company, but they effectively only have, you know, a portion of a company. Um, And what founder vesting does is it says, okay, we're going to split this up. 50-50, but we're going to earn our shares over four years. So for the first year, usually it's over four years with a one-year cliff. And what that means is that you actually don't earn anything over the first year, but you get a quarter of your shares earned on the anniversary of year one. And then every month from there on, you get a portion of your shares. So if I left the company after two years, I'd only walk away with half of the 50% that I originally had. If I walked away after four years, I'd walk away with the whole 50% because I'd earned it over those four years. So what this means is that, let's say I bring in a co-founder and give them half the company. Um, I can do that without being terrified that I'm giving away a huge portion of the company. I can give them what they deserve, and if it doesn't work out within the first year, it's no skin off my back. They leave without equity. But if they do great and they stay and they're with me for four years, then they earn all of their shares. And we can all feel good about um, you know, the contribution they're making and their time they're spending in the company. So this is something that investors will usually force upon founders um, because they don't want one of the founders leaving and walking away with a huge portion of the company. Um, so this is something I a lot of entrepreneurs are like, well, I already earned my shares. This is already mine. It's more protection for you, the entrepreneur, as well, because you know if your co-founder walked away, you have no protection. But if you're under this vesting agreement, then you have some protection. Talk a little bit about board control and why that was so important for you to negotiate. Yeah. So oftentimes your investors have a lot of things that they can veto. So they could say you can't sell the company. They can say uh, you can't do a funding round. And this is usually just based on share classes and voting rights. But apart from that, there's the board. And the board gets to vote on things like hiring, on stock options. Um, and the board is effectively what could fire you as the company's CEO. So where things get dangerous with vesting agreements is let's say that I was on a four-year vesting agreement 
and I didn't have control of my own board, my board could fire me and all of a sudden my shares aren't going to vest either and I've just lost my shares and I've lost my job. Um, so as someone, especially a founder on a vesting agreement, you want to make sure that you have control over the board so that your investors or your board can't just fire you and take away your shares effectively. You want to make sure that if you're earning your shares over time, your employment is relatively secure, which can really only happen if you control the board. How did you learn all this stuff, Catherine? Uh, it's honestly just been over time through conversations. ton of my friends are other entrepreneurs that raise money, have sold companies. And really, it's just been trying to absorb all of the knowledge and information I hear at conferences and with dinners with friends. And I actually just uh, wrote a book that comes out uh, in a couple of months. It's available for pre-orders right now, but it's on seed financing. So I've actually taken all of this and put together a guide for um, entrepreneurs on raising their first round of funding. It's called Funded. Um, so it's been really a bit of a, a passion of mine to try to figure out how all of this works and how all the pieces fit together. Was there a time in raising the money, uh, the million dollar round that you thought, this is crazy. I mean, I, you know, there's got to be a better way. I can, I can do this without the money. Did, did you ever try to do it without all that, all that extra money? If I did it again, I think I, I would have. Um, I would have tried to get to a better financial, maybe even a break-even point without the money. Um, at the time, we didn't have that much runway. So, and it was very piecemeal type revenue. So we'd get percentages of transactions, um, which when we were just getting started, our transaction volume was very low. So we weren't bringing in massive contracts. Um, So it was hard for us um, to grow revenue on that model. And also the funding environment was quite different. Um, This was four years ago. Um, Seed money and even, you know, million dollar type funding round money um, was relatively easy for, um, you know, fairly early stage pre or low revenue companies to get. These days, it's way harder for companies of that stage to raise financing. uh, And revenue is a much, much more important number to investors. Uh, And that's really just, I think, a shift in the funding ecosystem and how things have evolved. Um, So B2B businesses have become a bit more popular because, you know, you can bring in that $10,000, $20,000 clients and start growing revenue a lot faster. So what was your revenue when you were, when you were out raising your million dollar round? We were eight weeks old. Uh, I mean, our revenue, like maybe in the thousands a month, but you know, very, very, very low. Wow. And so, um, your, your valuation obviously went up significantly from the time that you got the incubator where you gave up 10% for 50 grand or a $500,000 valuation. It, it, suddenly, now you've got a million dollar investment. How much equity yeah. did you have to give up for the million bucks? So one thing that I've learned and is that generally, no matter how much you're raising, you're going to give away between 10 and 30% of the company. Uh, and that was true for us, whether it was you know, our incubator or then our round of financing, if we'd gone on to do a series A, you give away 10 to 30% of the company. And I know that sounds a little crazy because like, well, what if you raise 10 million? Why would you be giving up the exact same amount if you raised, you know, 50,000? That sounds crazy. But really, that's how it ends up seeming to work out. Your investors want a certain percentage of the company and that's what they're buying. And they want to give you the money that you need to get to the next stage. So 
you know, if we had gone on to raise a $10 million round of financing, I'm sure we would have given up 10 to 30% and the valuation would have been whatever that works out to. Um, but it's the valuations at this stage are not generally based on any multiple of revenue. They're based on the fact that investors want 10 to 30% and that you need X amount of money. Um, so I know that sounds kind of crazy, um, but that's really how it ends up working out uh, when push comes to shove and these deals get done. So take us from this exiting this round of finance. You got a million dollars in the bank. You're, you're building Shop Locket. Um, talk to us about 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 the next step, how how you you were acquired? Is, did you was there a triggering event that the day approached you? Talk about that. Yeah. So after we got the money, it was sort of like, oh shit! Now we have to actually make this work. Um, and I'd say it took us about six months after we got the financing to hit our aha moment as a company. Um, up until this moment, we were still you know sell anything from anywhere. We hadn't really stumbled upon pre orders as our thing yet. Um, but then there was one particular company, uh, it's called Interaxon, they make a brain sensing headband and they had done $300,000 in an Indiegogo campaign and they came off Indiegogo and they were about to go down to the consumer electronics show, but they had no way of taking people's credit card numbers on the floor at the show. Um, and they didn't want to actually charge people because it was going to be at least a year, maybe a year and a half until they actually shipped product. So we very quickly, these were you know, friends of ours. So over the Christmas break, we hacked something together so that they could use our platform to just take the credit card numbers uh, on the floor at the show. And in that one week at CES, they did more transactions than had ever gone through our platform, um, which if you know anything hits you over the head, it's something like that. Um, and immediately after that, we pivoted our entire sales funnel around similar companies that were uh, generally in the hardware space, sometimes wearables, usually coming off of Kickstarter and Indiegogo, but generally very high volume companies. Um, and those became our go-to clients. And they, what they needed was a pre-order solution. And that's what we became. And I dove really deep into the hardware world. I'd luckily worked in, at a hardware company in the past. So I knew a little bit about the hardware industry, uh, but not that much. And I started judging at all of the um, hardware competitions and hackathons. I started going to all the conferences. Um, and in doing that is when I got to know the company that ended up acquiring us. Uh, they're PCH. It's a global manufacturing company. So after we figured out that it was this market that we need to be targeting, I knew that I needed to just inject myself into the hardware community. So I started judging at hackathons. I started going to all the hardware conferences. And it was in doing that that I actually met PCH, the company that ultimately acquired us. And PCH is actually an Irish company, um, but they have a big operation in San Francisco. And then they do all of their manufacturing out of Shenzhen, China. And, you know, I can't actually name any of their customers here, but uh, you know, look down at your laptop, look at your phone. Those are the types of companies uh, that they work with, um, well over a billion in revenue. And they were starting to really focus on small companies. How could they help uh, the new up-and-coming wearable companies get to scale like the companies that they work with? So they started an incubator called Highway One. And I went to the opening party for their incubator this incubator only lets in hardware companies. They let in about 14 companies twice a year. And 
I went out to their opening party and that's where I stumbled into the CEO of the company who was there from Shenzhen just for a night to be there for the party. And one of my friends who had lived in Shenzhen sort of nudged me and said, you got to go talk to him. You got to go talk to him. And at the time, I didn't really think what we were doing was very relevant to what they were doing. Yeah, we both worked with small companies, but I'm an e-commerce platform. They're a manufacturing company. How does this really fit together? But sure, he's a really interesting guy. I'm going to go speak to him. And little did I know that PCH was actually working on a big e-commerce strategy at the time. Um, and the timing was just perfect with us getting uh, to know each other. And you know, as fate would have it, I was in San Francisco, but I was en route to Shenzhen when I met him. And we chatted for a little while that night. And he's like, well, you know, we, we should talk more. You know, when can we get together? And I was like, well, I'm kind of in Shenzhen tomorrow. He's like, I'm flying back. Come visit me in the office. So I went to visit him literally two days later uh, in Shenzhen, which was, I was so late for that meeting. I think I was like four hours late for the meeting because I was horrible at navigating China. Um, but I eventually got to the meeting um, and it was just a great conversation. And ultimately, I ended up following with a few people um, that he said were working on some key projects, um, both so we could do events together, but also maybe they could be a strategic investor in our next round is what I thought. Um, and very quickly, conversations around strategy and maybe them investing in a company like ours evolved into an acquisition conversation. And so what did your board say at this point? I mean, w when you were entering into these initial conversations, did, were they like, hold on, Catherine, <laughs> don't get too far down that route? Or what was their reaction? Well, we all knew that we were at a bit of a crossroads for the company. Um, we were seeing a ton of growth. Things were going really well in terms of our metrics, but we were going to run out of funding within the next six to eight months. Uh, Even with a million bucks? Well, we'd already been 18 months um, on the current money. And the rule of thumb when raising money is to raise about 18 months of cash. Um, so we were going to run out of money. So we were actually pretty deep into um, conversations about raising a Series A. Um, so we were out there looking to raise our next round of funding. And those conversations were actually going really well. Um, so the conversation between us and our board was more, okay, we have these two options. We could take another round of financing, go out and keep building the company, or we have this exit opportunity here right now. And you sort of weigh the amount you, of equity you need to give up in order to get the new financing with the opportunity you have in hand and how much that might be able to help you get uh, exposure for the platform and sort of how much time would it be to get to another exit opportunity if you kept running the company now? You know, what's the time value of your money? Um, so you're doing all of these internal calculations. And that's sort of what us and our board were doing at the time. So um, the decision was that I'd kind of pursue both for a little while. I continued to uh, the conversations on raising our Series A and continued some of the conversations around the idea of an acquisition. And then very quickly, when the acquisition was really taking shape, uh, it became clear that of the two options, that one had a lot of really great things for both us and our investors. It was a great return 
um, for us and our investors. It was a company that was willing to let us keep our operations in Toronto, um, which was something that was really important to us as a team. Um, they were going to uh, allow us to keep working in the same industry and on the same types of products that we already knew and loved to work on. We were going to be able to have a larger platform to work with entrepreneurs. So there were just all of these things that about this opportunity that just seemed to make sense. And financially, it made sense. And you know, as a young entrepreneur, this was going to be an incredible um, success that I could then, you know, really springboard the rest of my entrepreneurial career on. So all of those checkboxes got checked and we decided to really go, uh, you know, head on with the idea of the acquisition being what we wanted to do. But that wasn't without risk because as you're negotiating this acquisition and even though everything, you know, feels great and feels like it's going to go through, you always know in the back of your mind that these things can fall through. And, you know, as I'm not pursuing, you know, it's hard to focus on growing the sales of the business. It's hard to focus on you know, raising another round of financing. You're kind of taking a little bit of a leap of faith, putting all of your time and energy into this one option. Yeah. And at this point, had you gotten a letter of intent from them? Yeah. So the whole thing went really quickly. So I met the founder of the company. A month later, I flew down to San Francisco to meet with some more members of the team. Um, within two days of that, um, there was expressed interest in what we were doing from an acquisition perspective. Then we flew down to, we flew up or over to Ireland uh, about two days later, um, came out of that with a letter of intent. Um, and then, so that was about early December. And by Christmas, uh, we had both signed the letter of intent. They flew over to Toronto uh, the first week to have some final conversations with our team, make sure everyone's happy to go ahead. And then we set a date of January 27th to have the whole thing closed so that we could announce it on stage at a big conference that they were running. So we had two weeks to close the entire deal. So they flew people over who just sat in a room with me for a week and went through every single piece of our company uh, through a due diligence process. Then we went through legals in a week, signed it, and announced it on TechCrunch the same day. Um, it was the most stressful, condensed month of my life. I was like physically ill at the end of this month. Um, but at the same time, it was such an incredible learning experience. So talk to us about the, the LOI. Um, what was involved? Uh, I know you don't want to share the number, but just talk about what was it? Hey, we're going to buy your company for, you know, a range of X to Y. Was it an actual number? Um, did it give you, um, any sense of the working capital calculation? How much of the uh, money you left to maybe just talk a little bit about that for folks who've never seen an LOI. So it, it's very similar to a term sheet when you're raising a round of funding. It outlines pretty much every pertinent business like or financial implication of the deal. So it went through everything from the amount uh, of the acquisition to um, our employment um, after the acquisition, what the terms of that would be. Uh, it went through... Uh, even what our operating budget would be after the acquisition had gone through. 
um, how uh, all of the company's assets would be handled, like you name it, it was in this document. And the document wasn't particularly long, it's a few pages, but it's, you know, very high level going through every question you might have. And that's why I'd say, sure, the legals took a very long time, but most of the actual conversation and negotiation was over this letter of intent. And it was just the lawyers and the accountants that were battling over the paperwork afterwards. And so what was your reaction when you saw the amount? I, I think that both in the case of this acquisition and in the case of our fundraising, it just starts to feel kind of surreal and detached from you. Um, and I mean, it, it was kind of like, you didn't want to pretend it was real because it could fall away at any point in time and like you'd be devastated if that happened. So I had to approach it from a very like clinical perspective of, okay, like this is enough return for our investors. This works out for all the stakeholders. Like everything about this makes sense and is right. Um, and really the, you know, personal effect of that amount didn't really hit me until the whole deal was done and it was safe to have a reaction to it, um, without the possibility of, uh, everything falling away. But, but even then I think, you know, the natural thing in one's life is we're sort of on these, these step ladders and, um, you know, nothing is ever, you're never at this point where you're like, I've done it. Everything's like, I've accomplished everything I wanted to do in life. There's always the next thing, the next project, the next number. And, you know, once we had raised our first financing, you know, we didn't say like, amazing, we raised a million dollars. It was just like, okay, now on to the next thing. Like, what do we have to do? How do we build? And uh, I think the acquisition was very similar. It's like, this is an amazing accomplishment. But then we just went heads down into actually running the company and working with PCH. And it took me about a year to actually get my head, you know, out of the company and actually start looking at my life again and, you know, going back out to meetings and, um, you know, being a real person again, because I was just so into the company. Um, and yeah, I don't know, I don't have a particularly straightforward answer to that. But um, I think you just sort of, it's a little bit surreal, I guess. <laughs> well, let me ask you this way. How did, how did your board in particular, your investors feel about the amount? It worked out well for our board and all of our investors. Everyone got, uh, a good return. Everyone thought it was the right thing for the company at the time. So we're very lucky in that respect is that we've you know made our investors money. So, uh, we've been able to maintain some great relationships uh, with our investors and the venture capital community. You know, when, when you saw that amount of money on a term sheet or an LOI, um, was there any part of you that thought, well, if PCH is willing to spend this, maybe there's another five PCHs that are out there and they're willing to spend 2x this? Yeah, and I think that a lot of people probably do this better than me. I, I mean, we had sort of very casually gauged interest from the people that we um, thought might be interested in acquiring. Um, we had sort of had a few acquisition conversations in the past. They just never had all the checkboxes that made us interested in doing them. Um, and when this came, you know, I did a little bit of poking around uh, in other companies, but I didn't really know how people like what do they do? Do they like send an email blast being like, we're selling the company, like who's interested? I didn't honestly know how to, how you're supposed to do that. Um, so in our case, really, we focused on the one acquirer mostly um, and went ahead with the transaction. 
and what made sense for PCH, what made sense for us. Um, and really, that was the only relationship we cared about and that mattered. Um, but, you know, I should probably listen to your podcast because I have no idea how other people uh, actually manage to get like multiple deals on the table at the same time. They probably hire someone to help them. I realized that I totally should have hired someone to negotiate for me because there came a point in the negotiations where I realized that like these are the people I'm going to have to work with in the future. And here we are kind of like going back and forth. And, you know, this isn't, you know, the way you want to start a working relationship with someone. Um, so it would have been nice if there was like a good cop, bad cop, and you as the person that's going to go work for them is, you know, the good cop. Um, so I can totally see why people bring in someone else to lead a lot of these negotiations. I brought in someone who sat through the due diligence with me and the legal process, you know, aside from my lawyer, it was more of a consultant that helped me through. And they're so much more detail oriented than me. And that saved me, um, in the process, but I can see bringing in someone external would have been, uh, helpful. And I'd probably do that next time. And maybe that would have changed the dynamic, but, um, that said with the financing and with the acquisition, I'm really happy with how it all worked out. And I, I don't think at the time I could have done anything differently, but I think that with my experience now and the leverage I have now, I can sort of up my game, uh, as I, I move through, uh, my next, uh, companies. Yeah, absolutely. Talk about that, that period between letter of intent where everyone's happy and things are great and wonderful and our, this, this business is going to be amazing through to the actual closing document, the share purchase agreement that you were working through up to, up to January 27th. I mean, what were the biggest changes between the LOI and the share purchase agreement? There were almost no real changes um, between the letter of intent and the share purchase agreement. There were some changes, but they all had to do with like taxes and was it an asset purchase or share purchase and a lot of things that probably mattered a hell of a lot more to the accountants and the lawyers than it really did to me at the time. All of the things that were really important to me were hammered out before we went into the legal work. Um, what we did have to do after the letter of intent was due diligence. And that's where they send you pages and pages and pages of checklists where they go through every contract you've ever signed, your financials, you know, what uh, code you use on your actual product. Um, they talk to everyone in the company. They go through all the past financing. So you have to have incredibly meticulous records in order to be able to respond to uh, a due diligence request like this. And it just made me so glad that we had monthly financials always up to date and that we had our lawyers that had most everything on file and that I had gotten every single person that had ever touched the company to sign a contractor agreement because if we didn't have that, it could have been, uh, you know, really hellish, if not, uh, you know, a reason that the acquisition uh, could fall through. What it, I mean, what are you doing now? What, what's, what's, uh, what's life like now? I mean, are you still with PCH? Uh, so I am no longer with PCH. I left, uh, I'm trying to do the math here. I left in December of uh, last year, so 2015. So I was at PCH for two years uh, and I led a lot of their uh, global startup outreach. So I ran most of their marketing and events and content uh, for the hardware and startup world. Um, and we integrated a lot of our e-commerce solution with their broader e-commerce strategy. They also acquired a company called fab.com. Um, 
Um, so shoplocket shop and fab.com, uh, a lot of our customers and a lot of the strategy, uh, we spent a lot of the first year uh, making sure that all fit together. Uh, and I started doing a bunch of angel investing last year. So since I left PCH, I've actually, I'm working on a project called Female Funders, which is all about uh, encouraging women to start angel investing and uh, helping women uh, raise venture financing. So uh, my last few months has been all about funding. Um, and that's been a, a really uh, fun project for me. Neat. And where, where, where can people get in touch with you? Yeah, so you can find my email address at katherinehag.com. You can also get in touch with me or see what we're up to at femalefunders.com. Catherine, thanks so much for joining us. Of course. Thanks so much for having me, John. Thanks for listening to Built to Sell Radio with John Warlow. For complete show notes with links to additional resources, visit builttosell.com slash blog. John is the founder of the Value Builder System. To find out how to improve the value of your business by 71%, visit valuebuildersystem.com. John is also the author of Built to Sell, creating a business that can thrive without you, and the automatic customer, creating a subscription business in any industry. Connect with John at facebook.com slash built to sell or on Twitter at John Warlow, W-A-R-R-I-L-L-O-W. Thanks for listening.